0: Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go.
1: Welcome to The Edge Podcast, your weekly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business, making you a happier, healthier, and richer business owner. And here's your host, Brandon White.
0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. I want to do a quick intro here because John is our first guest we've had in our new recording studio here in Half Moon Bay, California. And getting the audio levels correct has been challenging. It's a little different when you have a guest in your studio and you have to adjust all the levels. So we've done a really great post-processing editing job on this episode. But if you hear some discrepancies, especially in the beginning, it's not your podcast player or your earphones going wacky. It's just us adjusting the audio. Other than that, you're going to love this episode where John and I talk about psychedelics and his new company that is exploring this new frontier that's pretty exciting. Here we go. Vecina, John? Vicena. Vicena. Where does that come from?
1: It comes from the root of Avicenna. He was a uh, Persian philosopher from about fourteen, fifteen hundred 1,500 years ago. Father of modern medicine, polymath, philosopher, like psychologist, politician. And actually before I met my uh, co-founder who is from Iran and he had formed this company about a year and a half before I joined him. My oldest daughter, her middle name is actually Avicenna.
0: Is that sort of random, isn't it?
1: Well, it was uh, serendipitous, I would say. <laughs>
0: When did you start this company?
1: Uh, I joined it about June of June or May of 2021. Uh, my co-founder, uh, and he had begun this company back in like, late 2019, early 2020. He wasn't working on it necessarily full time, but he had been toying around with the idea of uh, having an extraction technology that could be uh, applied for some of the new chemicals that would be used for modern medicine. Ideally, some of these psychedelics.
0: Yeah, so let's tell our listeners what we're really talking about here. We're talking about psych- psychedelics today, right? And sort of the next wave of therapy with them.
1: That's right. More than just psychedelics, psychoactive included. You know, psychoactive can be a very broad term. I mean, this beverage I'm consuming in front of me right now has a psychoactive compound in it called caffeine. But psychedelic, when you get to the the distinction between the two, it becomes very, uh, very granular.
0: Well, let's talk about that because serendipitously, I was driving home from... LA the other night, and I've not had caffeine in probably 18 months. And I had heard that if you haven't had caffeine in a long time and you go back on caffeine, that you can actually hallucinate. So I was a little bit concerned about what might happen uh, when I was coming home. But the only thing that did happen was I was jacked up for about 12 hours. But you can have psychedelic, I guess, or what's the right word, John? Uh, you can you, Caffeine can cause that.
1: Effective. I'd be surprised. I haven't heard about that. I'm I'm sure there has been some documented cases of it happening. Question for you: When you were driving back, how was your mood?
0: I was already miserable, so that w- that would be hard to. My mood got better because I had two large McDonald's iced teas.
1: Oh, nice. Okay, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't coffee you had. It was just caffeine. No,
0: it was caffeine. I'm not a coffee guy, but I will tell you, I was miserable because i was i had a meeting i had to leave late and i tried to get to bed by 10 so that i can get at least seven and a half hours sleep and stay on my rhythm because once you stay up late for at least for me you're sort of screwed up but when i did have the caffeine now that you mention it i was in a better mood but then i got home and realized that i wasn't going to sleep as well and i didn't i think i tonight last night was the first night that i was back on track do you have any information on that caffeine?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, caffeine is a very well-studied compound, and uh, and, and certainly it's only one of about 40 or 50 different alkaloids that are within tea. I and mean, within coffee itself, there's about another 100. And I mean, if you look at the history of coffee itself, it's it's fascinating. This little plant that comes from the middle of Yemen has now suddenly come and effectively dominated this world, become this social, cultural uh, phenomenon that we all use to get together, uh, and we use it for productivity. I think, uh, what's that guy's name? Um uh, Michael Pollan, uh, he actually refers to caffeine as the perfect drug, because if you think about the the downside of uh, withdrawal that you start to feel after approximately you know twelve fifteen hours, what's the solution for it? Well, you wake up and you have more caffeine.
0: Yeah, it's completely a drug. It took me probably two and a half weeks to legitimately, maybe three, to get off of it. First four days were awful, but I had realized that I had a serious problem because I started out with. One cup in the morning, like, you know how, well, any drug, that's how it starts. Having one cup, I'll get, I'll wake me up. Then it turned into two cups. Then it turned into four cups. Then I was at five cups, basically four cups in the morning of tea, which isn't as much caffeine, but still British tea. Having
1: five cups of it, you're having the equivalent of, you know, three cups of coffee or so. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then I was having, I was doing this power nap thing where you drink after you eat lunch, you drink the caffeine, you take a 20-minute nap. Oh, yeah, yep. And by the the time you... Yeah, exactly. But I just didn't want to rely on it anymore. The other thing that I was worried about, I'd be interested in your your thoughts, is that the research on it shows that when you're on caffeine, it starts to bring up your upper body breathing, which then creates this fight-or-flight situation, which then puts you in panic mode, so to speak. And then I was thinking that that just wasn't good.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I haven't seen all of the physiological research around it. I mean, neurochemically, what you're actually inducing here among uh, you know, your your brain's uh, primary dopamine, serotonin, uh, and, uh, oxytocin, uh, neurotransmitters that's occurring um, is exactly trying to get you to a point of heightened stimulation. That's the reason why we consume it. Why I asked you about the mood is I also had gone for the past about year and a half without having consumed any coffee. I still consume plenty of tea, but coffee has uh, has certainly some different compounds into it. Uh, and. Around what, November December, I noticed that I was becoming particularly irritable. You know, there's natural startup founder anxiety, the the pressures of having three children at home, this COVID social uh, isolation, and I I don't remember exactly why, but for some reason, I had like my first cup of coffee in a year and a half, and almost like instantaneously, I could tell I just I felt happier. I was less irritable. My my uh, I was more tolerant of just the you know usual uh, annoyances that happen at home with family life. Uh, and I was amazed by this to the point that, okay, maybe this abstinence completely from uh, from caffeine is not a good thing for me, or I should say necessarily coffee. I mean, it's caffeine plus all sorts of other stuff that's in there. And I, I like you, I also don't like having to be dependent upon uh, any compound for productivity. That's why I, I'm personally not a, a fan of the concepts of microdosing. But when it comes to actually caffeine, I've come to, to recognize that, you know, maybe like a once every three months, once every two months, um, you know, maybe even once a month, it's not a bad thing.
0: So you said... Microdosing. You don't like microdosing. Why don't you? I mean, that's like a here in the Valley, Silicon Valley, for listeners. It's like the newest hot trend.
1: Yeah, I'm just not a, a fan of necess of uh, requiring anything external in order to be productive. Um, whether that's um, that's an illicit substance uh, like uh, what uh, often is used out here in the Valley, or, or something that's consumed every day like caffeine or nicotine.
0: Well, that's interesting that you're started a company. That does things for with psychedelics. That does alter your mood to give you a different state, which could be—I don't know. Someone could say that is making you more productive.
1: It is, but the the dosing requirement is not habitual. I mean, it is something that you can uh, you can take a psychedelic one time within your life and then never require it ever again because the medicine itself, the the dose that you're taking. Um, What it's doing to you physiologically is much less important than what it helps you recognize psychologically.
0: This episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text CARA at 571-271-9086. And talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text CARA at 571 271 9086. Now back to the show. So say that again. And and when you say it's not habitual, are you saying that psychedelics aren't addictive?
1: The, some of them can. Well, I mean, it's a it's a very broad word when you use the term psychedelic, like obviously cocaine, one of the most uh, addictive compounds in the world is, quote unquote, psychedelic uh, as well. Um, it's more of a Dopamine pathway that it takes than serotonin, which is where the majority of psychedelics are trying to impact uh, uh, recently. Um, but chemically, uh, with serotonin, it's much harder to create this level of dependency uh, as uh, as compared to dopamine, where every time you have an increase, you then require more and more to get to the same um, uh, neurochemical impact. So chemically, not addictive, or I should say, much less addictive. Um, the the feeling of doing anything that makes you feel good, obviously, is addictive. Um, exercise, uh, you know, reading, sex, I mean, any of these can be addictive. So from that standpoint, yes, there always can be a psychological dependency that you form.
0: So let's talk about specifically what drugs your company is looking at and the use case. So what is the use case besides recreational, which has been going on for, I think, a thousand years,
1: yeah, I would even uh, uh, I don't like to use the word recreational, which that term often comes in because it gets confounded with the recent laws uh, that have been passed around cannabis, which I would truly use that as recreational. The majority of psychedelics, or I should say the majority of psychedelics that are being developed for drugs uh, for pharmaceutical purposes are not what you would take at a party, or I should say a, a party where you' have you know thirty people at a club or a hundred people at a club listening to music. Um, the, you know, quote unquote, party that 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 uh, got popularized in the 70s by people like Aldous Huxley that were having groups in their living room tended to be smaller, more intimate sessions of five to 10 people, like all sitting in silence, uh, weeping because of what they're experiencing emotionally. I could call that a party, but it's not not a, a recreational purpose for why uh, why you do it.
0: Well, then you might call that a therapy which gets into a whole nother realm, right?
1: And that's exactly what it is. It is a, a therapeutic use a, of it for deeper intellectual and emotional insight in order to, I'd say, quote, unquote, solve a psychological disorder. But why these compounds have been consumed for thousands of years goes much more than you know solving a problem and, and much more around having a deeper insight about you, your community, and your relationships and the world in which we live.
0: All right, we're back. We, uh, in-studio adjustments for the first in-studio interview with John. We were talking about in-person therapy or sessions, I guess there really are, but they're really therapies. But here's what comes to mind. Then you have these shamans, for lack of a better, you know, directors directing this who for a thousand years haven't been certified, but they've probably been trained in their culture. So how do you think that's going to happen moving forward?
1: Yeah, it's a a wonderful question where there's a lot of debate uh, in in two camps that I had very loosely categorized the world into, or the psychedelic world into. Uh, One is pure legalization, that these compounds are going to, uh, and when I say these compounds here, traditionally, the the Gen 1 psychedelic compounds are known as MDMA, uh, psilocybin, and LSD, just the compounds that have been studied for a very long period of time. And there's a, a number of of new compounds that are you know, not necessarily new, but uh, but newly studied, as well as new formations of these compounds that are being developed. The uh, one school of thought is that there will be wide legalization. Anybody that wants it can just go to the store and buy it. Um, I'm not a believer in that one, nor am I necessarily a supporter of that one. And then on the other extreme, there's the fewer medical route that it will always be under medical supervision. You need a, a prescription from a medical doctor in order to be administered these compounds under a highly supervised and highly clinical setting. Um, so to your question there about the, the historical use by a lot of these shamans from indigenous tribes that have a, a lot of experience using these, there's a number of training programs out there, most prominently from MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, that are trying to treat people or or train people to to treat people in a a medically supervised setting following the principles that have been learned from all these shamanic societies. But I would put the emphasis that it's much more on the medical side than it is on anything from a group therapy or uh, an ancestral knowledge that has been passed down from tribes for thousands of years.
0: But all of those things that they've learned from the tribes for thousands of years really could be just as medical as medical training, because there has been no medical training, at least the, the research that I have or did before we talk, well, you and I've talked a few times, but the only official medical studies going on is at Johns Hopkins now. And I don't think, and maybe there have been some doctors who have been doing this in their back room or in their front room and just not telling anybody, but there's just not a lot of research. I mean, there was some government research back, I think 50s, 60s. There's some bad things that happened as well in those studies, but no modern studies, at least that I've seen, to do this. So they're going to have to lean on something. Otherwise, it's going to take us 20 years to figure out how to make this legal, right?
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. Uh, I, I don't think it'll take 20 years. Uh, MDMA should be legal in 2024 for PTSD. Um, uh, Hopkins was uh, really the, pri- the the pioneer as the first uh, university medical system doing this. There's probably about 10 or 15 established programs in the world now. Um, and, uh, UCSF is uh, one of the more famous ones. Imperial College in London as a, a pretty renowned one. Wisconsin has opened a, a very large organization. But your point is, is exactly right here, is considering the mental health crisis that's coming across the country, the number of certified practitioners, if they're all required to be certified, which in some ways I think it's a good thing that they are, but the number of certified practitioners that we have is just not nearly enough for the onslaught that we'll need.
0: Well, wouldn't it be possible that, I mean, why wouldn't it be like cannabis was in the beginning? You had to go and you get this doctor's card, which was sort of a formality yes, right yeah. You, you yeah, you pay somebody thirty bucks, you tell them you, you're depressed or you have cancer I, I don't know if people said cancer, but there was a there was a list of things that you could say that would allow them to give you this thirty dollar ticket. Are you concerned? I'm listening and i'm I'm saying the truth of the matter is people are using this they used it last night they've been using it for decades. I'm not saying they're all responsible, but wouldn't it be better to have the drug manufactured? than built in a basement and unofficially being distributed?
1: Yeah, unquestion- uh, I, I agree with that, Un- unquestionably so. And that's simply because if I look at the risk portfolio behind this here, there's the, the probability of, of risk and the consequence of risk. You know, the, the probability of something, quote unquote, bad happening is pretty low, but the consequence of it could be very, very high. And I'm speaking in the case of somebody who has a, a prior history of psychosis, uh, perhaps bipolar disorder, uh, or perhaps someone who just has had a, a a truly traumatic experience. Where if they're in a you know a recreational setting, do you know how to deal with somebody that's reliving an experience of uh, of having spent three or four tours of duty in Afghanistan? Like that can be a very difficult thing to manage if you're not properly equipped. Um, I would believe that most of the the shamans, you know, having honestly never uh, spoken to someone who's you know been practicing for a thousand years in Peru, but I believe that they have the experience for doing it. Um, they're medical professionals. This is exactly what they're being trained to do. I don't lean in on on saying that this has to be medicalized. I do lean in on, on saying there has to be some type of a regulatory authority regulator or a regulative body that's that's overseeing this process. and And so far, you know the the medical administration seems to be the best one. What's happening within Oregon is really interesting where they're actually creating a new regulatory body specifically just for psychedelics. And it's a an experiment that all the world and all of the the country is keeping an eye on to see if it's something that can be replicated.
0: So you're saying that it would be good that it would have medical oversight for someone who took a substance and had a bad episode. And we do that all the time with alcohol, right? Yeah. No, I'm joking. (laughs) We don't because they're just using that drug. They're still reliving the experience. There's no, I'm asking, are we tiptoeing because we need to, because we're scared regulators are going to come in here and do something crazy when the fact of the matter is, is alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs there is, and there's no regulation other than a tax to make sure that the store that sells it is taxed.
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing about this uh, country, which we could get into another uh, hour-long conversation about that as well. I mean, alcohol is much more driven by pragmatism than it is by by the medical world. Like we tried to ban it a uh, hundred some years ago, and that was an absolute disaster, <laughs> simply just because of the uh, of effectively the economic consequences of it. Yeah, you know, interesting. If you if you look at psychedelics, I've, I've never seen a, a group of people sit around with a beer. And after a couple of rounds together, I'll start crying and recognizing, you know, we have this greater interconnectedness and I need to do more with my life. That is something that I do see very regularly when you see people under a psychedelic influence. So you know, number one, the way that these are consumed and the way that they're uh, impacted from a therapeutic standpoint, very, very different. Now, the commercial standpoint, if left to be un- completely unfettered, and this is what you know, the Nixon administration was really concerned by, is they had a slight concern uh, around the use of of these compounds back in the sixties and seventies, and then paid, portrayed this this uh, future of just fear and abandonment uh, as the reason why everything has to be banned and stopped uh, altogether. You know, somewhere in the middle ground would be a little bit more appropriate.
0: Well, thinking back, John, I don't. I think I can recall some of those episodes with people in college that they drank alcohol and had that. Maybe maybe psychedelics are just more effective at bringing out those memories. My point is is not to debate the whole thing, but to say we're already using. I just don't understand this. We're already using illegal uh, drugs. We started with caffeine. People just rationalize that that doesn't do anything, right? That just is a pick me up, but. I've heard that you like we talked about earlier. You you can actually see things, and it it's a known thing. It has a physiological effect on a person. Then we have alcohol, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, if anything, maybe it just makes people crazy. I haven't smoked pot in in decades, probably two two and a half decades. But when I did smoke pot in college, I never got a speeding ticket. I, I've only I think I drove too slow if I did drive on it, which I don't even remember driving on it. But I've never seen someone on pot be aggressive or do that. So it's really odd to me that we have these drugs that are already legal and we're sort of overthinking a psychedelic drug that, one, may be good for people, and two is certainly doesn't elicit the behavioral consequences that alcohol and these other drugs do.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. This is uh, why it becomes such a controversial topic that's rooted within really just the court of public opinion which I should say that the, the side that was against the use of drugs, uh, whether medicalized or for recreational uses, did a very good job in the 60s and 70s through the whole war on drugs campaign of creating public fear. So one of the leading researchers in this area, Dr. David Nutt um, from Imperial College, who formerly was a health minister in the UK. He actually was forced to abandon his post a number of years ago, quite famously, because he actually said exactly what you just stated right here that LSD is far less damaging for a human than alcohol. And while scientifically he can be correct, when you actually look at the toxicity, when you actually look at the the pharmacokinetics of what happens within the brain and the body, that was just a statement that the public was not ready to accept and he was forced out of his position.
0: Yeah, we probably could talk for three hours on, this is probably more uh, soci- sociology discussion as it relates to the legalization of it. You said something earlier though, that I, I don't know whether I agree with or not, which is you said, you didn't support the use of substances to activate an altered state that may make you more creative or something like that. Well, why not? I mean, some of the greatest writers of our time have taken these things and wrote about it.
1: No, you're right about that. When I say support, uh, legally, yeah, fully supportive of it. Personally, uh, I I don't like that um, for myself, just simply driven by my own ego and nature of believing that I should be, uh, you know, we can go through all, all of my childhood traumas of how I became who I am, but my own belief that I should personally be stronger, uh, stronger, faster, wiser, smarter, and that my own brain, body, and psyche should be sufficient, that I don't need any of these here. That's just coming from my own personal drive. And that being said, perhaps a little bit hypocritical, of course I rely upon caffeine for productivity. Of, of course I rely Well, that's
0: on. what I mean, like yeah. if that's the case. So I just wanted to unpack that a little bit because I've actually, I'm pretty much completely substance-free other than that caffeine the other night. I'm really not taking anything. I started taking vitamin D because there were some studies on COVID that that could help you. And if the sun is less than 45 degrees, you're not getting vitamin D outside, which none of us in North America are right now. So other than like some supplements and vitamins that arguably have questionable science that I'm taking Like glucosamine, that says it does for your joints, and it seems to do it. Well, it seems to do it. Whether that's a placebo effect or not, I I I don't know. But I'm pretty much substance free. But I've been thinking, like, oh, I was reading On Writing by Stephen King. It's a relatively short book, but a really good book about his life and how to be a great writer or a good writer in his mind. The first part was went faster because it was his story of his life. Second part has been a little bit more painful for me because it's a little bit slow on how to write well. But you know, I was reading that book and I'm and I'm thinking, there's just so many people in our society that have taken substances to increase their awareness and and things like that. And there's been a societal belief or stigmatism on people who have done it who said. Oh well, those guys are or women are hippies. They're out there. They're the ten standard deviations from from the norm. But my question is, are they? And and are they tapping something that the rest of the quote unquote I'll use boring population who isn't tapping that has potential that they don't even know that's not being used?
1: Yeah, have you read uh, Brian Marescu's The Immortality Key? Not yet. Okay, it's one I recommend. Uh, He also has a very controversial theory that goes beyond just the you know quote unquote boring people, but all the mainstream people, uh, rooted within his ethnobotany. Uh, and the, the studies that he has gone through is that the root of all organized religion actually comes from psychedelics. And this goes back to some studies that have occurred across like pots that were used in ancient uh, Christian religious ceremonies in the in the what, 400 AD type of era, where inside these pots, they were able to find traces of ergot fungus uh, because these pots were all being used for brewing ceremonial beer, which was you know, effectively the only safe liquid to drink at that time. Ergot, of course, being the, the precursor for visergic acid diamine or LSD. So his belief here was that what was being perpetrated across all the, the major religions of the world, which I'm mean, sorry if this becomes a little controversial, but you know, the whole concept of creating a religion, how do you do it? Well, you find those that are underrepresented and underappreciated uh, by the mainstream religions and you appeal towards them and then you become the one in power and someone else does it again and you know, lather, rinse, repeat. His belief was that what the early Christians, uh, which was a, a fairly enlightened religion at the time, were, were, were doing was giving people exposure to these psychedelics in order to have a greater insight about uh, the fear of death, which is well, psychologically what has driven us for so much of time.
0: Yeah, so I have heard that about that book and I do want to read it because I think it's interesting and I don't want to get into, like you said, it'll probably blow up my inbox about religion, but I think I should just say for our listeners, whatever gets you through the day, right? Like I'm not judging anything whatever gets you through the day. But they, they effectively are tribes that are designed to be tribes. They're, they're if you break it down, and I, it will be controversial, I guess, but you, know, you could go, go so far to say if you looked at religions and just took the facts of them on how they operate and how they keep their tribe together, and you looked at some of the characteristics of a cult, it would be very hard for you objectively, not subjectively or emotionally, to say that there was much of a difference.
1: Yeah, I, I full wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And I would say the religion, if I would use that word very loosely, that I subscribe to as fervently, as adamantly as any anyone in the world is science. I have a, a belief structure that's based upon scientific inquiry. I, I have a following that I will be as emotional, as irrational about based upon what I see in scientific literature as others are based upon what they see in perhaps another form of literature.
0: Yeah, I don't want to get you and I get, get off topic on it, but it's fascinating to me and I grew up with a re- religious background. I, I think I had a, a good sampling of everything. I was baptized Catholic. I was, went to an Episcopal school. And I went to a Lutheran church on Sundays. And then I went to Episcopal ceremony on Wednesdays at school. And then I did go to a Catholic school for a little bit. And then I went to an independent school. So I had a good sampling of some of the, obviously, it, it wasn't a Jewish school. So that that would be a little bit different, obviously, because of the New Testament and the Old Testament. But I had a good sampling of it. And I think it's definitely an interesting Discussion and I guess you have to figure out what you just said, which is what's the definition of religion?
1: Yeah, and you and I are have to share something in common that we're also both married to the Catholics. who come from a, a South America and a very, very strong-rooted history where religion is not just something that you you seek for your tribe, but so much of actual law, culture um, uh, of actual political law is based upon it. Though so, I mean, it's
0: it, there's uh, a lot of things that uh, uh, I've I've studied and find quite. Interesting. I'm gonna hold my tongue on a few things because you and I'll just go go down a rabbit hole. So back to psychedelics. Your company is what what is what is the goal of your company? Is your is the goal to manufacture these substances? Is it to create a better version of an existing substance? What is it?
1: Yeah. Our goal is to create a product that's going to do benefit out there in the world. Our our approach is that we will eventually be the manufacturer for it, which rarely happens within the pharmaceutical industry. In our case, it happens to fit us well just because my partner, my my co-founder, Shaheen, um, and myself, are both chemical engineers. And what we're good at is actually the process of making chemicals. Um, Now, ultimately, as a pharmaceutical provider, rarely will you have this level of vertical integration because what it takes to actually then bring a compound to market requires a very different skill set in terms of pharmacology, medicinal chemistry, toxicology, and certainly the entire regulatory approach of being able to prove that your compounds are safe. So our goal is to be able to prove that our compounds are safe and effective for treatment of uh, some very specific mental disorders.
0: So are you taking existing compounds and creating them? I mean, you're basically the modern day pharmaceutical company.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you look at the history of the pharmaceutical industry here, so much of uh, of um, what has been done, I wouldn't say rightly or wrongly, but I'd say very productively, has been taking what has been inspired by nature and finding out how to make that much more effectively and, uh, and wide scale for the public. So kind of the the classic uh, pharmaceutical drug that's often looked at as an example here is Taxol, which comes from a, a willow bark, which um, I forget exactly which indiz- indigenous tribe was observed as having consumed this for pain management and for relief. And eventually that became aspirin. So it's a a very good model to follow. Then if you think about, well, the investment that's required for a pharmaceutical company to be able to bring a drug to market is enormous. And it's not so much an R&D as it is in actually proving that it's safe across hundreds or thousands of uh, individuals that you have to put into a clinical study. It gets very expensive. How do you recoup that cost for a compound that's naturally occurring and certainly can't be patented? Uh, The approach that the majority of pharmaceutical providers, as well as the majority of the the industry involved in psychedelic research here, is how, how can I create a new molecule that looks something like nature, but I can tweak it enough so that it still is as effective, but I own it? That is not the approach that we are taking.
0: That's not the approach. What is the approach?
1: Our approach coming much more from a standpoint of, I would say, engineering than it is based chemistry is uh, our belief that there is rarely something that we can find that we can create synthetically that's better than what has already been evolved through nature. Because just uh, eventually we'll get to the point that synthetics can be more effective than natural, but nature has a a couple million year head start upon us. Our approach is that that we're creating novelty by taking pre-existing compounds that are are already existent within nature and then recombining them into very specific formulations that can deliver a unique pathology for treatment.
0: Can you translate that for less sophisticated people? Uh, You're going to take natural substances and harvest them from nature and then put them into a drug form?
1: and then blend them together. So think about like the formula for Coca-Cola. Everything that goes into Coca-Cola is naturally occurring. It's a, a formula that what five people know of and is stored somewhere in a safe in Atlanta. Coca-Cola didn't go out there to say, we're going to take this flavor that's coming from a sassafras root and then create some side chains on it that that this is then protected and we're the only people that can make it. They actually just decided that we have this natural formula that's of 10 or 15 different ingredients that we're going to mix together in this very specific ratio in order to create this flavor that people enjoy. So the analogy that we take as well is we're taking compounds that are already existing within nature. You can't patent those compounds, but what we are doing is recombining them into a, a very specific dosage. That provides a neuropathology that's well treated or well suited for treatment.
0: My only question to you on Coca-Cola is: I read a bunch of things in that Coca-Cola that aren't quite natural, so there are some things in there that aren't natural,
1: right? Yeah, aspartame. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm sure their formula has undoubtedly changed over time. Things like that, but. Yeah. So that's a, Perhaps another one that I love. I just recently discovered that uh like Angostura, you know the bitters um, that are used, that formula is as guarded as Coca-Cola. It's like something like uh, only but three people within this family in Trinidad actually know what goes into it.
0: Really? Yeah. yeah, I think that's also an interesting approach is that there's always been patents and and trademarks and things like that. But Coca-Cola never trademarked or patented their their formula ever. I mean it's a, it's a different approach to business too. I think Entrepreneurs get tied up with I got to get a patent. I need to get a trademark. Well, Coke is not arguably they are the leader in soft drinks in the world, and they've never patented. And people like Gore Tex, who I had the opportunity to work with when my brother and I were doing a clothing company, they don't. They didn't patent Gore Tex. Gore Tex is just a, a trade secret that no one has been able to figure out.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I'm. Uh, I mean, I, I filed about 11 patents within my own life for my my prior career working in consumer products. And I'm a, a strong believer. I mean, unfortunately for me to say this, why did I file so much art? It's because I was paid $1,000 every patent that I was filed. And that's within the confines of a big company. So
0: uh, it's all about, I mean, this goes back to incentives. I mean, yeah. that, that's what this, I was talking to someone the other day, John, and I said, if you want to understand any behavior, any behavior of any company, person, anything, all you have to do is pull back the onion Layers and figure out where the incentive is. Once you figure out the incentive, you can then construct a environment that can change behavior. It's I hate to say it's that simple. It's hard because most people can't get to the true incentive structure. It took me four years in a government position to actually figure out what the true incentive was. I was under a a misperception that it was one thing. And it turns out it was completely different. And then, then I made a choice of that I wasn't going to try to fight to change the incentive because I just felt like the energy
1: was not worth it. Yeah, within government? Yeah, good luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: You could have given me that advice 10 years ago. And maybe maybe we'd be in a different spot. Maybe we'd be here. We still would be. But I think that's, it's all about incentives. So you you filed these patents. Now, do you intend to file any patents with the current company?
1: Yes, uh, that's actually a, a fairly critical part of our strategy now and something that I would say that uh, I naively began with a different perception. And that's just simply because of the industry that we're in. So you look at Coca-Cola, uh, you look at Angostura, these are consumer products that are unregulated. Uh, and I, as an entrepreneur myself, what I strongly believe in is that uh, far more important than your IP protection is your ability to execute. You know, patents are cheap. Forget about that. Like just be able to execute. And I mean, certainly just Coca-Cola is as you said, the the poster child that's brought about this here. I mean, what their market cap is what uh, 30, 40 billion. If you like sum up all of their assets in the world, what are they, like two million? Like that's the value of their brand because of how well they've been able to execute and and they did an outstanding job with it. Pharmaceuticals is a little bit different because I can't just create a brand and start selling it to a market, a place for a product that's regulated and I may not be allowed to sell.
0: Why why wouldn't you is it because the compound is more discoverable than Coca Cola. I mean, I'm sure people have tried to reverse engineer Coca Cola. I'm just curious. You said patents are cheap. It just depends on how much money you have. You raise uh, ideas
1: are cheap. Patents are actually very expensive. Yeah, yeah, there you
0: go. So I, I don't have eleven like you. I have one. I think my incentive was is that I actually thought I would be able. Well, one, it was a challenge. It's a challenge to get a, a patent, especially in technology. So that was an incentive. But it, it's it's not only expensive initially it's expensive to maintain it, defend it. And if someone violates it, it's extraordinarily expensive, arguably for startups, not even, you, you, you almost can't even defend it because you don't have enough money to defend it. And that's the strategy of the big companies. So how are you? And I mean, are you guys going to raise a hundred million?
1: Uh, if we're if we're successful to get to the point that we need a hundred million, then the answer is absolutely yes. For us to bring our product to market, it will require hundreds of millions because of just the level of clinical testing that we'll have to do. Now, it would be a great problem to have to have to go and 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 raise a two hundred fifty million dollar round to go run a phase three clinical trial across. You know, 10 different countries. That's a great problem to have because it means that we've created something successful that has reached that stage gate. You know, if we go one step at a time here, the first value that we have to, to create is just create value. We have to be able to show that we have a compound that is more effective at treating these disorders uh, than anything else that's out on the market.
0: Well, this sounds like a painfully long process, John, because uh, you and I were talking about before we jumped on here, you almost have to create a company that does something. I'm not saying you're doing anything illegal, but Uber would be an example. They were. Or, or Lyft, really Lyft was the first company. I think Uber sort of jacked them. But if you look at the history, but they designed a company that fundamentally broke the law. And you're on the frontier of doing research with drugs that in some places aren't legal. But I imagine, Kemp. So, so how do you, I mean, you have to get permission, right? And there's this big movement to to do that. So how how are you going to be able to how what is the process for you to make these compounds that aren't legal yet? Is it to go through this whole clinical trial process? I mean, this thing takes years, right?
1: No, that's right. It is to go through the whole clinical trial process. It's to get the right regulatory approvals to be able to work with these compounds. I mean, the one of the things that makes us unique is that we are looking at compounds that the majority of the of the industry is not and some of them are uh, are not scheduled substances, so we are able to do the research on them legally. We do have intention and desire to start working with some of the controlled substances, which that requires many other hoops to jump through. Facilities that we need to, to acquire and construct that have the right level of security to be able to get uh, licensing from DEA. All the, the partnerships in place that we need to be able to import and export and and send uh, compounds that we make that are controlled to a third party that can then undergo some of the level of testing that we need for toxicology, as well as in human. Of course, all the institutional review boards for for research. It's a very, very long process. I would uh, I would say that uh, I don't look at that process negatively because the entire medical ecosystem in the United States is based upon the simple principle of they're going to over-index dramatically upon risk just to make sure that uh, it, a product is as safe as possible. Other countries, are not necessarily that way, but I'm thankful in this country here that uh, we are prioritizing safety. You know, those regulations are changing uh, day in and day out, but I, uh, I would say they're, they're there for our good, although there are many unintended consequences as a result of their policies.
0: So how do you... How, it seems like the chicken or the egg. I mean, you, you, right now, are you filing all these applications to be able to work with this. Yeah, we are. How long do you think that's going to take?
1: 4 to 4 to 5 months. Um that's just it. For- Yeah, just for the initial process, not necessarily for the approval. Now, not everything has to be you have to get this application in place before you can go do anything. It's a stepwise process where we'll need some permissions uh, in place to be able to handle controlled substances. At the same time, we have plenty of work to do with our uncontrolled substances. Having a license to work in controlled substances gives us the ability to then start doing a lot more research. But there's plenty of research from uh, existing art that's out there, as well as existing partners that do have such licenses that we can work with uh, in the meantime. So not like everything has to wait until a a specific milestone.
0: What specific ailments are you looking to treat with your, specifically with your company? I guess you've really carved out a niche.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We are looking very specifically at at a niche here. I mean, if I go broader across the industry, there's uh one company or maybe I call call them two companies that have been dominant across this uh, this realm, publicly traded companies called uh, Compass Pathways and Atai Life Sciences. Both of them have a well, the, given some stock recorrection, I don't know exactly where they, they stand now, but call it more than a billion dollars of market cap. And these are our companies that will probably be the first to market. And they've taken a, a, a very successful approach here of trying to go with, uh, we're going to take these Gen 1 molecules, uh, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, and conduct the research to be able to to be the, the ones that have the data that give us the approval to be the first ones that practice. Our approach is to take a, a much different niche.
0: So are you going... You're. We talked earlier, you said you're going to really be the pharmaceutical company, but are you going to be the pharmaceutical company in your niche with your compounds and then also administer it? Like, or where do you sit in the ecosystem?
1: Yeah. Not the administration of it. Where we sit is upstream in the the research and development to create these products, to bring them to market. Ultimately, the administration will have to be by a medical professional. I mean, assuming that we go down what seems like the likely pathway. If there is broad scale legalization, this entire business model gets turned upside down, of course.
0: How do you deal with that? Like, What do you and your co-founders talk about? I mean, you're, you're, you're basically, Danny, this is not a five-year startup unless you get bought. Yeah. No. Right. Yep. I mean, this is a decade or two decades worth of work here. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, that's fair to say. And, and uh, I mean, the only reason to start a business is, uh, what is it? I think like Is it Tim Ferriss, that says, is that it has to be more painful to not start it than to start it. And this is what we've chosen to dedicate our lives to because this is what we believe in. How many people in your company? Two full-time plus a handful of uh, consultants, advisors, and part-time people.
0: So you're going to raise money again soon. If you just do the math on salaries...
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. We're going to raise again in about three months. That's when we're going to actually have our, our, our proper seed round.
0: And for, from the business perspective, I'm always curious. Well, people are always curious. They always, you always hear this things like you're, you're on the forefront of arguably probably one of the biggest markets to come to fruition in, in a century in the bio world. How do you live? Do you guys and ladies save your money, live on our savings, and then you compensate one another, or the compensation is based on the cap table, meaning who owns what? How have you thought through that?
1: It is based upon, call it the difference between cash flow and, uh, uh, and value.
0: When you're doing the compensation and thinking about it from a co-founder's perspective, do you, well, let me give you an example. Maybe I can give the example better than explain it is I had a friend approach me recently who said, Hey, we need some help with tech, the tech end of this idea. And there's this discussion. Well, first I said, let's validate the idea. And my process after two and a half decades of a shit ton of mistakes is let's figure out if there's worth a discussion around equity. So we had a few calls that I shadowed on and listened to. And I said, Hey, I've heard enough. I think there's I think there's a, there's a problem there. Whether mm-hmm. or not they'll pay for it, they say they'll pay for it, but what people say in that process and what people do in my experience is very different when you show up with the widget and you're like, Hey, John, I just built this blue cup. It's $29.95. And you're like, hey man, I thought that was cool, but not $29.95, right? Yeah. yeah. So went through that process and then I said, okay, next. And then everyone's excited. Like everyone's jacked up. We got a problem. We're going to make some money and da 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 And I said, well, next step in, in the process is we have to have an equity discussion. And then, then there's silence, right? Because everybody knows they need to have the equity discussion, but nobody wants to have the equity discussion because it's very uncomfortable to have the equity discussion in general. And you're experienced at this. I know you are too, but it's still uncomfortable because you are now judging people's, you're effective not judging you're quantifying what someone's worth is by number doesn't mean that that's their worth as a human it just means that everybody has these perceptions so in your case when you're early stage like this you raised Sorry. a bunch <laughs> of money, you've raised a bunch of money yeah. and you don't necessarily have enough to pay everyone what would be considered your your full salary that's just fact I mean where you yeah, where, ourselves included yeah. right where you are in, in in age and where you would be if you went into the market so how did that how do you guys have and ladies have that discussion, especially with the timeline that you're dealing with
1: yeah do you uh, are you familiar with uh, I think Reed Hoffman quoted the the star wars uh, theory of employment like, no
0: I, I, the, the thing that i um, I am not. I use this thing called slicing the pie, which sort of brought. Some oh, sure, clair- yeah, sure. That's,
1: that's the the equity discussion. But if I go at a higher level of anybody that you would hire into the company, he uh, he likes to term it as they're either, uh, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, or or Princess Leia. The the translation being. Luke Skywalker is the person that's looking for something transformation. You know, someone who's been in industry for 10 years and wants to go change industry, change function, learn something new, uh, is sick of being pegged as like the finance guy and wants to go do something else. Han Solo is the mercenary, someone who's just, you know, you pay me. And kind of muscle memory might might uh, reflect that engineers in Silicon Valley tend to fall in that category because they can command a pretty high payment. But simply for them, it's just if you compensate me enough, I'll do the job and I can get the job done. Uh, and then founders tend to fall into the Princess Leia category that it is foundational to who they are as a person. So when you're trying to to hire as a startup, you ideally want to index away from Han Solo and much more towards the Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia. You're never going to purposely get, get it right just because sometimes the skill set falls in the people you have to compensate. When you're within an industry here that's treating mental health and particularly looking at uh, effectively how does the mind and the brain work and and how uh, neurochemically do we Define the way that we behave with each other. You tend to get a lot of people that fall much more in the the foundational or the transformational category. Uh, and we've been privileged to be able to have people that uh, really believe in what we're doing, that believe in our niche differentiation from not just our development approach, but also the indications that we're treating and the way that we're uh, we're treating it. That they're willing, and not just willing, but uh, actually quite eager to work with us. Let's say partially because they believe the equity that they are granted will be worth a lot of money, and and partially because they want to be a part of something that's really changing.
0: So that's a Great answer. I love the Star Wars. I hadn't heard that thing from Reed. I think it's a good way to look at it. But when the when it comes down to the brass tacks, how do you? I mean, do you sit at it Did you sit at a table? And I'm saying this for our listeners out there because this yeah. is not talked about a lot.
1: Yeah, and it's a really, really you know what you're 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 fundamentally getting at here is how do you have a discussion with somebody about their value? And it's very, you know, I should say, it's impossible to have an objective discussion about something that's this emotional topic. Well, how how do we do it uh, as a as a management practice? Um, being an engineer, my uh, approach is number one: can I find data? Looking across whether it's Glassdoor, slicing the pie. What uh, ECVS, the uh, the Early Stage Venture Capital Association, they publish a couple of reports around like common benchmarks for what people are granted. I mean, those benchmarks are always impor- uh, 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 imperfect just because they don't capture the full complexity of what you need at this time and what is uh, somebody else that's, have, uh, that's available. But they give you the ability to have some realm that, you know, Brandon, if I'm coming to you and offering you uh, a quarter percent, like will you laugh out the room and say, like, you know, get the F out of here. You're, you're out of your mind. They At least give you the ability to not be laughed out in the crazy land. And they can help you uh, under- establish that boundary. Then when you're coming to the realm of within this boundary, do I veer more towards the quarter percent versus 2% if that's the range? Know there's no exact science that I've ever found for that other than, well, if you really uh, get down on uh, a boundary here that you either teeter off the ledge or you stay on the ledge. If this person walks because I'm not willing to offer 2.25% versus 2%, am I okay with that? And the calculus for the other person also has to be, is this worth my time? Time much more than just the financial value of time, but also the emotional value of time. And uh, you could say it's an efficient marketplace because it's a two-sided equation, but uh, there oftentimes seems like there's nothing that's efficient about this process.
0: So how long did the process take for you guys and ladies?
1: Uh, not that very long. I think we've been uh, been pretty fortunate so far, and to have people that really believe in our mission. And um, you know, we ourselves were are very cognizant with everybody that we work with here that look, we we can't pay you a market rate. What we can pay you is a value that can be worth significantly much more than the market rate if you have the patience to wait a couple years before the company reaches to a point of liquidity. You no, know, there's a there's a risk value within that, and you know the 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 concept that nobody makes any decision based upon logic. It's all emotional. No, we can. Yeah, I do.
0: I, I think that, I think that's one of the hardest things that we as humans need to do sometimes is to take the emotion out of it to have a better decision.
1: Well, it, there's two ways that I can look at that. Like, yes, you you're right, uh, but they don't also number two stop us from being human. So um, the way that I've tried to look at this just very pragmatically is if I spend 10 days overthinking this and really coming up with the most complex compensation model, I probably will not have a better answer than a one hour. Uh, investment in time into this year and we've indexed much more towards the one hour
0: well that's good i think slicing the pie for me put a logical process into place that would be willing to follow and for listeners out there who haven't read it i think you can download it for free maybe if you do slicing the pie pdf if you google that but it basically comes up with hey how much an hour are you worth and then you keep track of your hours the downside for me with that is when it met the actual implementation, then I felt like a consultant who was trying to keep their hours every day. And it's just impossible. Like, do I count the three hours I ride my bike thinking about this? It's, it's, you know... that, that's a really hard thing to. Well, it's
1: also very emotionally unhealthy. I would say, particularly if you get to a co-founder discussion here, then you start getting into well, my time is worth more than, than his time because I studied engineering and because I have a greater ability to code. Well, but his time might be worth more than mine because he has uh, more of a network. And it, it's very easy if you follow that that purely qual or purely quantitative approach um, to then start having some resentment for the person that you're working for. That oh, I'm working harder, or is this person working harder? And you know, there is a. Uh, uh, these are such qualitative methods of, of distribution here that you have no way of knowing what the other person is thinking or what what the other person is is doing. It's much easier to reflect on ten years later, and that's the danger of using any of these calculation templates here. That they can put you into this, you know, me versus you, where like, why are you co founders or why are you employees? You're trying to build a business together.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Didn't work. I, I like the con. It it's been a good concept to bring up to people at, around the discussion, but it hasn't. Worked as it relates to implementing it. Did you get? Did you create a vesting schedule for everybody?
1: Yeah, uh, everybody, ourselves included as well. That we tried to stay as standard as possible, which is you know one year cliff, four year vest. And in the case of advisors, that might be a little more temporal in nature because their skill set needed for a shorter period of time or the phase that you are. What we followed there as as much as we we could was to try and follow the format that the Founders Institute uh, with their fast agreement publishes, which is a two year vest, three year cliff. So what's that? A two. A two-year cliff? Two-year vest three-month 3, three month cliff for three-month cliff, yeah, for okay. advisors and consultants, for people that may not necessarily be with us for the long-term or if they're in kind of a, uh, I mean, I don't like to use this word in, in California with a specific employment law, but evaluationary period. But is it someone that want to get to know better before you extend to be full-time?
0: Yeah, I got to tell you, doing employment law in California feels like we're in Europe. And that's not a dig on Europe. That's a comment on the complexity and economics that Sometimes I don't understand how they would work, but that's another discussion. Uh, I guess that Saturday morning here, we got, no, is it Sunday morning? That's how much Sunday I know. Morning, yeah. Sunday morning, what's on our mind? Well, I appreciate you sharing that. It's a little bit off topic, but on topic as it relates to building your company and how that's going to work. And it's not often talked about. And I think it's better for founders to hear it. And and I I also think to have that discussion way early. Because having it late, I mean, you've done how many companies a lot is just, an it turn, does not turn out well, right?
1: Yeah. You know, can I save everybody a, like a $120,000 education? Like if there's one thing that I learned from Stanford Business School, which uh, duh, like I could hit myself in the head and just said this here is like run towards conflict and address anything that's that's controversial as early as possible. And like, okay, that's very easy to intellectually know. And it's much harder to emotionally understand when you're trying to get to the intricacies of, well, does that mean that anything that I'm pissed off by or anything that I'm, I, I think could be an issue, I have to bring up with my co-founder right away or bring up with my advisors right away because then that might sour the relationship. So it's, it's much harder to implement than it is in practice. But generally, you're 100% correct is tackle every hard issue day one.
0: Have you heard about the bison and the cows in the, in the Midwest? So storms, as you know, move from west to east in general, and the American bison and cows live in the flyover states and the Midwest. Well, when they see a storm coming, a cow will start running east. And Mm. the problem is, is that that storm catches them and they're very slow. So they stay in it. The bison, on the other hand, runs right into the storm because they do hit the storm But as they're running, their exposure to the storm is much less. So I always say, be the bison. But that's easy advice with a cool little story that doesn't make it any easier, but may remind people. Because if you do not do that, uh, and isn't, I don't know, John, isn't that really just true in relationships and life in general, not just startups?
1: Yeah. As I say here, you know, this is useful only in business and in life, like nothing else, but just in business and in life, this will help you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So going back to your company, What is your timeline or what is your expectation as it relates to getting to this niche? And is it to, you know, as you're talking and we're talking about the big pharmaceutical companies, they've got more money, they've got more people, they definitely have more bureaucracy. How are you thinking about how you're going to compete in this arena where if this gets some legs, obviously these big companies, big pharmaceutical companies are going to jump on it.
1: Yeah, so we're often taught within these businesses here to create any business with the exit in mind. And you know, me having been on the investor side for the the past number of years here, it's like before you do any deal, always know how your exit turns out. If I'm realistic about this uh, here, you know, 99, 95 percent of uh, early stage drug development companies will end up getting acquired rather than going to actually bring their own product to market. You know, that being said, it's uh, very hard to create an inspirational company when every day on your wall you've got this uh, this title that says we're going to build this company to be sold. And you can't exactly say that, or can you, or should you even build a company with that manner? Uh, what really comes down to is a uh, you step back to just the first principle is create something of value. If you have something of value, you can either be able to continue to raise capital if you need that to be able to bring it to market, or someone will want to buy it. And uh, M and A and exit, oftentimes within the tech world, is seen as a as a failure. Within the pharmaceutical world, here it's actually just a, a very pragmatic benefit in in many ways. And, uh, you know, pharma gets a, a really bad knack because of people like the you know the the Sacre family, which you know I, I haven't read the recent book yet, but and I I don't believe there are guys out there, you know, twiddling their mustache saying, How can we, you know, sell, you know, get people hooked on heroin and and you know, screw them. Ultimately, you know, incentives of economics do come come in, but uh, you know, nobody begins a company thinking, How can I screw over the world? These pharma companies that are out there and the bureaucracies that they've created have been created for good reason, uh, and as a reason of how to survive within this business environment. And when it gets to the ability to be able to run a clinical trial across thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people, like there's very few organizations in the world that know how to do this. And you can try and pay people to learn how to do it yourself, or you can partner with them. And if you are to exit to a greater pharmaceutical manufacturer in the end, or not necessarily manufacturer, but drug development company like a Pfizer or an AstraZeneca, that may be the best way to actually bring your product to market.
0: One of the things that I've learned over the years, which you pointed out, I just want to emphasize. Is I think there's a difference between building it, something to sell it and building something with an exit in mind. Because during the dot-com craze of late 90s, it was, we're just going to build it to sell it in many ways. People wanted to build big companies, but <clears throat> there definitely was an undercurrent of, hey, you can you can build it to, to sell it. And I was a part of that movement. I didn't originally build it to sell it. I didn't even understand all that back then, to be honest. But I think that what I've learned is, and I think what you said is really important to emphasize for, for people listening, which is build something of value first. Because if you build it to sell it and you haven't built something of value, you're screwed. You're, you're screwed. It was a fake out. It's, you're done. You could get lucky, but is that a risk you want to take? And then second, I pretty much approach it. And look, I asked you a very unfair VC-like question oh, well, how are you going to compete with the big guys? I mean, if if you couldn't, if the big guys could do everything, we wouldn't even have what we have. So yeah. it's a dumb question. I hate that question, but I did want to hear how you were thinking about it. Not that it was a trick question in that way, but I think you have to build a company fundamentally of value. And when I have been on, which I've been on the entrepreneur side, way more years than I was on the VC or even angel investing these days is, build something of value. And if you build something of value that solves a problem that people are willing to pay you for, that's growing because it's a big enough pain point, someone will knock on your door.
1: Yeah. And frankly, big enough pain point has to be a big enough market to be in VC. It's all dominated based upon the market.
0: Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. VC is a, VCs get the news, but predominantly most companies are not VC fund, not right. predominantly right. like, what is not it? And,
1: yeah, ninety. I forget what percentage actually take VC funding in this world. It's yeah, Ninety. It's tiny. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, like five, 10 percent. I think we would be generous at ten percent. Yeah. And they, they're not a fit for VC funding, but VC funding gets the the dialogue because they need to put that out there to entrepreneurs. Because without entrepreneurs, they don't have business. But I think that you absolutely and you know the first company that I sold that got us to where we are literally sitting john was because i purposely after i had to buy the company back came back and said i'm just going to build to build value to solve a problem which back then was make uh, help people catch more fish it was really that simple and with that in mind i did have an i wasn't building it as an with an exit to exit but i had an exit in mind and i i came back and said well we're going to do this regional site We're going to own the region and eventually someone's going to need this region to plug into a bigger strategy, which ultimately I knew someone might have. And that was the bet. And if they didn't, okay, worst case, I'm throwing off a few hundred grand a year and living a decent life. And sure enough, one day, some guy, company, media company came knocking and said, we want to do a roll up and and here you are. So I think it's really important to do that in your industry. I think you're absolutely right. You're going to get acquired because the big companies really don't, I'm sure they stand up units in these things, but it's actually their business model, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is more than just even pharmaceutical, but really any large company. And this is something that I took a long time to to learn from uh, my career at Procter & Gamble. Like why, why is it so hard for a 100,000 person company to innovate? It's because you have the infrastructure in place for scale, and that infrastructure means very, very low risk. If innovation only came internal throughout the company, then you would only be launching things that are just far too low risk. You know, a, a company, especially in an area of pharmaceuticals like a, like a Pfizer or a Merck, they don't have the DNA, nor do they have the incentive structure in place to take that early stage risk. What they would rather do, and perhaps they're going to overpay a little bit for, is wait for someone else who's taken that risk that they can then scale up. If they were to, to put in the, the you look at the failure rate for early stage businesses, if they kept that same failure rate within the company, they would be bankrupt. So for them, it's much cheaper than instead of having a portfolio of 100 startups, to wait for the ones that emerge as actually successful, overpay a little bit for you know the three or four that they're going to acquire every year.
0: Yeah, that's a insight that I didn't really think about. I didn't. I didn't work in a company like Procter and Gamble. I worked at my biggest company, which I guess is a Fortune 100 company, but it was AOL Time Warner. or was AOL then became AOL Time Warner, and then became AOL. But we were a startup. So what you saw at Procter and Gamble probably is true. They they have all the infrastructure in place to scale and distribute, but they they they're not. That's really what they are, aren't they? They're just a scale and distribution company. And, and marketing company, they, they know how to market at scale.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they have uh, outstanding product developments. Um, what are they really good at is what I would consider to be the incremental innovations. Are they going to have the, the next breakthrough e-commerce or the next breakthrough uh, technology that is going to revolutionize skincare or the way that we, we do laundry or, or some deeper chemistry that's coming from that? Unlikely. That's probably going to come from them acquiring someone else. And if you look at their history, they've been very acquisitive and it's a, a very good strategy.
0: Yeah, that's a. I, lo- I learn something new every day, and that that's a big one. And actually, for listeners, if you get asked that question by a VC, why isn't, why can't Microsoft do this, or why can't Google do this, or why can't Facebook do this, I would just steal John's answer.
1: And people ask us all the time as well, like, uh, how are you? Can you compete with a compass pathways in this? Who is the, you know, the biggest you know, Peter Thiel funded organization that's out there? And the simple answer I can have is if they were to turn around tomorrow and say, we're going to pivot our focus to work on the same compounds that Visana is working on and the same smaller indications that Visana is working on, we would get creamed by them, but they're not because their focus is on a on a much bigger market, or at least a much bigger initial market, and a much broader distribution realm than, than ours is, how are they going to capture that niche, which they can then grow? They're going to look to see who can we acquire that has already done this.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. Did we miss anything today? I tell you, John, I'm grateful for you being tolerant of my... This is the first, like I said, in person. And it turns out that there's a lot of stuff that you have to manage to put on a podcast live that you do not have to do when you're running a zoom.
1: Is this being recorded by video too? Yeah, like it's a, absolutely. Um, oh, awesome. Cause like, it's actually been uh, just fascinating for me to see you on the other side here, playing with all these dials all the time and to keep a presence of mind of having to do this, like your own production while you're interviewing. Like, <laughs> well, the I,
0: only, the only thing that I'm thinking, John is, is that on the next time I think I'm going to hire someone to come in here because it's very hard. It It, it has been, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that you, you know, you always learn something new. And I think this is a lesson. I always like to learn something new, but I had set this up and I, I was like, oh, John's going to come over and we've been planning this for a while. Yeah. And I haven't had people here because of the COVID stuff, but you and I know each other and have a history and I trust you. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just set this up. I got my my podcast table here in the middle and we'll set up two mics and we'll go. Well, there's a shit ton of feedback from your mic coming into this mic i've got to hit this mute button really so that i don't get your voice which could be distracting to you but could also i was thinking could be a trigger because you know that when i hit this mute or unmute it
1: i'm going to talk yeah it's actually that's a that's a really good thing to do because then i know when you're getting close to the end of your your train of thought so it's actually that's a good signal no that's yeah, good you know, so that's what a lessons we learn
0: learn that the lighting is actually pretty good you got to adjust i got to, I did have to adjust the lighting while we were talking. you've got to adjust that camera in general because it, it can move here in the studio, which I want the the video for YouTube but this has been like a fish out of water today because it is completely different than doing it on zoom.
1: Yeah, Zoom also makes it a lot easier when you have multiple screens that you can then keep your notes up. Like, but when we're having, when we're having a conversation here over some beverages, your focus is on me. It's not on the notes that you have. Whereas if the camera is facing the same direction as your screen, it makes it very easy to pretend that you're actually focused on the person on the other side of uh, of Zoom.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I, I I tend to. I think this is like you and I hanging out. I like it more. Yeah. I just I will like it more once I figure out all the settings that need to be set or have someone who's producing it on the side. I mean, it's very clear to me now why that happens and we'll see how this recording turns out. I think your mic is on the money. I was didn't want to move. I have a mic like that over there. I think I might have to get another mic to and this mic is a shotgun mic that is a little bit more has a little bit uh, different dynamic, but I I don't know. What do you think? Is table good? Is the distance good? Do you think we're too close? Do you think we should be farther away?
1: Yeah, if there's causing some feedback there, maybe farther away just for the separation. Well,
0: not just for that, though. I'm just talking, forget the feedback, whether it was, I mean, is this a good distance? Like you and I are at a coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that worked. And all the sound stuff is working that we've invested a lot of time and built that wall seems to be catching the sound. So I'm really grateful for you coming in. We are going to head out on the road today and ride 40 miles, and probably talk more about companies and startups. And oh, well, there
1: was one other thing that you yeah. you had mentioned that I didn't want to touch on as yeah. well. Which uh, it was a question I had for you when you started your first business. You know, not just related to our train of thought around building a company for an exit, but what was your motivation for starting your first business?
0: Well, it was it was actually Princess Leia. There was no fishing magazine that covered the type of fishing that I did, which was light tackle fly fishing. There was, I'm gonna say some, I don't want to use this word because I don't want to offend anybody, but it was like a paper, one of those paper publications. It mm-hmm. was it wasn't quality publication. There were obviously national fishing magazines like Florida Sportsman, which covered Florida and some other things, sport fishing, saltwater fly fishing, fly fishing in saltwater. But there was no regional magazine that covered the Chesapeake Bay, ma- mainly the Mar- uh, Delmarva Peninsula, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, which encompasses the Chesapeake Bay, which is the largest estuary in, in the world, has arguably some of the best fishing in the world. The coast of the Mid-Atlantic has arguably some of the best blue water and nearshore it's the white marlin capital of the world ocean city maryland it has a mid-atlantic 500 out of uh lewis delaware or not lewis new jersey cape may cape may i think is where it's out of but people fish out of it ocean city it's just it in my mind warranted a publication that didn't exist and i went to the a local publisher in chestertown where i was getting at that time i had gone back to get my master's in psychology at washington college And it turned out I didn't have enough money to do a print publication. And there was this thing in 1996, 1997 called the internet that I had played on in college. And I thought, why wouldn't we put a magazine online? And that's what I did. And my motivation was really pure. It was also selfish, candidly. I wanted to catch more fish and I wanted to know how Mm -hmm. people were doing it. So I built this thing. I put a magazine on the internet with an interactive component, which is now called a forum or in Facebook, a wall or whatever you want to call it. We called it forum and where fishermen could talk and in saltwater fishing, the fish move every day versus freshwater fishing, which was a lesson I learned about creating an online community. You need things that change. That's why CNBC has a show because the stock market doesn't matter what the stock market does. It doesn't. doesn't. All it has to do is move and fish move every day in saltwater fishing. And that's what I did. it. I did it. And then I realized that you could probably make money. I read an article in Time Magazine, I think in the front, they used to do new and innovative stuff. And there was an article about Jerry Yang and David Philo raising money. And I told my partner like, hey, if they can raise money for this phone book on the internet that they were at the time doing by hand, why can't we raise money to build a a fishing community which is 50 billion dollar market in the united states with 50 million fishermen i these aren't even i think they're a little outdated my memory of this stuff because i sold that company i think nine years ago but it was uh it was purely selfish and i think the only lesson that i i learned a lot of lessons which we don't have time for to talk about today but i'll probably write a book on but i think one of the lessons that i learned and is the topic of another podcast, maybe with you, is don't do something you're passionate. Everybody says do something you're passionate about. Well, the story for me is I loved fishing. I fished 200 days a year back then. I fished every great fishing spot, pretty much freshwater and saltwater in the world, except one place in Russia called the Panoi, which I just didn't get around to. But It actually ruined my passion because I was doing it for passion in the first 10 years and it was awesome. I was on ESPN and I was doing fishing shows and I had the website and, you know, a miniature celebrity in that niche. But the last 10 years, if it was 10 years or the last five years, I felt like I had a fish and that, and I haven't fished other than with my nephew and my brother and my best friend in nine years. I don't fish on my own anymore. I don't do it. You know, you could say, well, you didn't do it right or something happened. Nothing negative. It's not like I fell overboard and almost died. Nothing like that happened. I just, I got burnt out because I felt like I had to do it to make money and that changes the dynamic. So that was a really long answer, John, to your question of uh, why the
1: uh so I'm going to, so I want to make a mental note to myself here. Passion, niche, and purpose. Uh, the other note I was going to leave is like for all your guests, we you do this in person, like, ha- like remind them to have a piece of paper. There's like so many notes I want to jot down to be able to fall back up on. Yeah,
0: I think you're right. I probably should. What did I tell you? What did I tell you to bring? Oh, I told you to bring two water bottles for a ride today, yeah. but, but I could say, Hey, bring your notebook because that's what I'm doing over here. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. making these notes as you go. But Thanks a lot for getting up uh, for listeners. John got up really early, drove uh, what we call over the hill from Mountain View here to Half Moon Bay. And we're going to go for a bike ride. Best of luck with your company. I'm looking forward to it. And, it, you know, if it if it becomes legal, I'm interested to see what that thing can do.
1: Yeah, no, I can guarantee you'll learn a lot about yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, could, be, could be good, could be scary, but probably ultimately come out a better person. Thanks
1: a lot. Good luck. Oh, I forgot. This is what
0: happens when you you're doing something new. Do you have three tips for fellow business owners? You for listeners, we'll put John's background in in the notes. John's got done several companies as a as an entrepreneur. He funded companies with a what would you call it VC fund or
1: yeah later stage kind of turnaround VC. It was in more of a niche of uh, of resuscitating companies that had stalled out and were just no longer popular or sexy among VCs.
0: Yeah, so John's got a ton of experience. Overeducated like me. What are three HPTs, high percentage tips for fellow business owners?
1: Okay, well, I may give you four just because I have one that always sticks out to my mind here. But I actually want to tie in the last three things that you just brought up in your answer around passion, niche, and and, and purpose. Number one around purpose, if you're starting a business uh, for the the objective of being Han Solo, of just making a lot of money, it's certainly not impossible. There's plenty of successful cases like that, but it just is is a lot harder. Um, the only reason you should start any business is, is, and I like what Tim Ferriss says, it has to be more painful to not start it than to start it. So really find something that you would be doing, solving your own problem or being a part of a community anyways, because realistically, you'll make so much more money if you just go into corporate America and have a steady paycheck with a a regular annuity. You have to be getting paid with something that's much more than financial out of it. I'd say the second is around your your niche is go after that niche, uh, go after that small market, you know, the small $50 billion fishing market that's out there. You know the, the niche that we're going after with the Visena is a specific form of uh, of a, a depression and anxiety indication that most people are not looking at because it may be seen as too niche or not the the biggest problem out there like PTSD or treatment resistant depression. That's that's you know hundreds of millions, but a fifty million person, you know three billion dollar industry. That's a pretty good niche. And the reason why you're going to win is always execution. And as a startup, what do you have as a benefit? It's the ability to execute fast, which means niche, not this large scale. And the third one I uh, want to touch on is also around exactly what you said around passion. You know, how do you become passionate about things? You become passionate about things just by doing them. And how do you discover what are you passionate about? It's by experimentation. So as a, a key advice that I'd offer for anyone that's listening here is experiment. Go figure it out exactly where is the problem that you yourself want to solve. Go figure out what is the problem within a a group of people or a community that you want to solve. That's where you're going to figure out what problem am I solving. And then what I'd say is really just my one piece of advice that I've offered for everybody. What was Written by the uh, the Oracle of Delphi uh, under Apollo, you know, Know Thyseaton, know yourself. There are many ways to know yourselves. Psychedelics are certainly one of the most effective ways that are because of just you know how much you can know about yourself in a very short period of time. The on the other spectrum of how you can get to know about yourself very effectively in a much longer period of time, but probably the most risk free is just meditation being able to, to be still with yourself, observe yourself, and to be silent with yourself is something that can be very hard and very scary. But only when you do that, can you start to understand what is it that you really have a passion for? What is it that you would wake up for and do if you were paid nothing for? And where can you just frankly, really have your own limitations in terms of the struggle we face on a regular basis as a founder, which is, you know, can I really do this? Can I really work in this industry? Can I really raise this capital? You only get to know that by knowing yourself.
0: I think those are great three HPTs with a bonus. Where can people find you in the company?
1: Uh, you can find us uh, online just at vsanit.com. I'll say admittedly, you're not going to find a lot of information as uh, what I've learned certainly about the pharmaceutical realm. You know, Less is a lot more. <laughs> the The simplest way would just be you know, through you or through some information we can leave, just message me directly. These private channels can be much more effective when you can speak much more discreetly without having to expose everything about your your secrets, which you know, going back to our prior conversation, most industries forget about secrets, it's all execution. This is one where those trade secrets, that IP really, really does matter.
0: Right on, we'll put everything in the show notes for the listeners. John, thanks for coming by this morning and we'll hit the road.
1: Looking forward to it. Thanks to you, Brandon. It's great to be one-to-one. This is, I think, the longest one-to-one I've spent with anyone outside of my family since COVID.
0: There you go. Bye, everyone. Thanks for being generous with your time and joining us for this episode of The Edge. Before you go, a quick question. Are you the type of person who wants to get 100% out of your time, talent, and ideas? If so, you'll love our monthly EDGE newsletter. It's a monthly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business. In each newsletter, we pull back the curtain on our business and show you exactly what's happening. The real numbers, real conversion rates, lessons learned from failed and successful strategies, and how we're investing the money we make from our business to outperform the general stock market. We lay out what we're doing to get 75% conversion rates on our product pages. How we're optimizing our Facebook, Instagram, and other paid ads to get our leads under $3.87. The results from our email A-B tests. Results from strategies I test to get more done in less time. That allows me to ride my bike 100 plus miles a week, work out, spend time with Yvette, and still successfully run our business. How I'm investing the money we make from our business that has led our retirement account to average 20% over the last 10 years. The exact stocks, ETFs, cryptocurrencies, and other investments we're buying each and every month. And tons of other actionable information. Imagine the time and money you'll save by having this holy grail of business intelligence. You can take all of it, apply it to your life as an entrepreneur to avoid costly mistakes, and be happier, healthier, and richer. As a fellow entrepreneur who's aiming for nothing short of success, you owe it to yourself to subscribe. Check out the special offer with bonuses for you as a listener at edgenewsletter.com. Again, that's edgenewsletter.com.